Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am getting ready to cover 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17, a relatively short passage. I'm going to call it Stand Firm in Paul's Traditions. Our context is this, the first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 covered the man of sin or the man of lawlessness, one of the most complicated and difficult passages in the scriptures. I gave it my best shot. So now we're going to go to something a little bit easier here. So we start in verse 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, but we must always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Now what's the but therefore? The election of the Thessalonians is happily contrasted with the damnation of unbelievers in verse 12. The previous verse said this, So that all will be condemned to those who do not believe the truth but delighted in righteousness. But, verse 13, we must thank God for you because he has chosen you. He has elected you for salvation. So there's your contrast. Bad news for the unbelievers, good news for the believers. Now, Paul says we must always thank God for you. That means he's bound to. He's constrained to. He has to. He, there's nothing else he can do but thank God. That's how much he thanks God for these Thessalonian brothers who are loved by the Lord. He says they were chosen, elected by God from the very beginning. The beginning of what? Well, Barnes says it's the, or suggests that it's the beginning from eternity. It could be the beginning of the preaching of the gospel to them from the very beginning God has chosen you. And, of course, I imagine Arminian would like that because Arminians cannot stand the thought of God choosing people from the foundation of the world, before the world. Another option would be the beginning of time at the creation of the world. All right, so we have he chose us from the beginning from all eternity. He chose us from the beginning of the creation of the world, or he chose us from the beginning of the preaching of the gospel to them. I think it's from all eternity. He chose us. God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. And then not only through sanctification by the Spirit, but also through belief in the truth. And Barnes says, because of that verse, without sanctification and belief in the truth, no one can show evidence that he has been chosen. Sanctification and belief in the truth. Now, why does Paul mention that they're elect? Because Paul wants to give them some good news after the bad news of the man of lawlessness. Which, of course, you know, they have a great apostasy. And the man of lawlessness appears before the day of the Lord. So he decides to ease their pain a little bit and talk about the good news that they've been chosen from the beginning, i.e. from the foundation of the world. Now, let's go to the old Arminian Calvinist debate here. Who does God choose? Does he choose groups like nations? You know, the Arminian will look at Romans 9 and says, oh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He's chosen the nation of Jacob, the nation of Israel. And he rejected the nation of Esau, Edom. But since he's chosen Israel, and since the church is the new Israel, we can choose with our own free will to opt into that chosen nation. But God didn't choose us individually. We have to choose ourselves into the nation, which I consider absolute bunkum. Unfortunately, there's a tons of Christians who believe that. And they, the Armenians come up with a sophisticated argument about in the mother's womb, there's Jacob and Israel. There's Israel, the nation, and Edom, the nation of Esau. And I keep thinking, what well, was it a nation? In Rebecca's, in um, Rachel's womb, was it a nation, or was it individuals? Well, 
we can look here at Second Thessalonians 2.13 and ask the Armenian the same question. From the beginning, God has chosen you. He's chosen the Thessalonians as a nation? The nation of Thessalonia or Thessalonica? Come on. He chose everybody individually. Or maybe the Armenian might say, well, he chose the Thessalonian church as an entity. And then we can individually choose to opt into the church. Really? That is not worth really refuting because it's clear that when God chooses us, he chooses us individually for salvation from the foundation of the world. And that, my friends, is what gives comfort. Because by golly, we need comfort in this world. We go to verse 14, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He, Jesus, called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, the he is God. If you look back at verse 13, God has chosen you. Continuing on there, verse 14, he, God, called you to this, to what? Salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth, which he just mentioned in verse 13. God called you to this through our gospel. Now, Adam Clark, the Arminian, says that what was it that God called us to? Not to eternal salvation. No, he called Gentiles to the same privileges as the Jews had. This is according to Adam Clark. Well, how does that square with the word this? He called you to this. There's no reference to Gentiles being called to the same privileges as as the Jews in this passage anywhere that I can see. He called you to this is referring to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Doesn't that sound like individual salvation to you? Or does that sound like a nation being sanctified and a nation believing in the truth? Folks, nations don't get saved. Individuals do. So he called you individually to salvation through our gospel, not because Paul authored it, does he call it our gospel, but because he preached it, so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there's lots of ways that Jesus had glory. John Gill says it's the ultimate glory, the resurrected body, when we are raised to glorification on resurrection morn, as he puts it, so that we have the same glorified body as Jesus Christ does. That's what Jesus has called us to. That should encourage people as they're living their grubby little lives here in this veil of tears. Second Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers and sisters, so then why? Because they were elected. Because they were chosen, as Paul says in verse 13. Because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation. So then, verse 15, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Jameson Fawcett Brown points out that their election was a call to action, not inaction. Because you are elected, brothers and sisters, stand firm. From the beginning, God has chosen you, verse 13, verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Now, John Gill says that can mean stand firm in the gospel generally, or it could be referring to more specifically, don't waver about Christ's coming. For, because in 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, Paul had said this, I want you not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Paul is saying, stand firm, don't get worried, don't get easily upset or troubled. Stand firm because the day of the Lord has not come and when it comes, good things will happen. You haven't missed out on anything, whether the day of the Lord is 8070 or the end of the world. Stand firm, folks. Hold to the traditions that you were taught. 
Now, this stand firm cannot be used to claim the believers can use a salvation, or at least I should say it cannot legitimately be used, in my humble opinion, to say that you cannot lose that you can lose your stand for salvation. In other words, stand firm, and if you don't stand firm, you could lose your salvation. And the idea is, well, Paul wouldn't be exhorting the Thessalonians to stand firm unless it was a unless there was a possibility that they might not stand firm and thus lose their salvation. No, that's not what it means. But this is what Adam Clark claims. He's the Armenian. I'm picking on him today. He says, quote, Their obtaining eternal glory depended on their faithfulness to the grace of God. See, it all depends on us. See? For this calling did not necessarily and irresistibly lead to faith. He's, he's jumping on Calvinist there, irresistible grace, the eye and tulip. Nor their faith to the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, their faith does not necessarily lead to the sanctification of the Spirit, nor the sanctification of the Spirit to the glory of our Lord Jesus. Had they not attended to the calling, they could not have believed. Had they not believed, they could not have been sanctified. Had they not been sanctified, they could not have been glorified. All these things depended on each other. And what's the first thing in the, in the chain there? From salvation to glorification? The first thing is, had they not attended to the calling. It's up to them. It's up to the sinful, wretched believer who is dead in his trespasses and sins. It's all up to him. You ever seen a dead man choose anything? All these things depended on each other. They were stages of the great journey, Clark continues, and at any of these stages they might have halted and never finished their Christian race. Oh, really? Eternal life? Eternal life? So there is a part of eternal life that you can opt out of? What part of eternal does Adam Clark not understand? Eternal means eternal. It's going to last forever. So you get born again and you lose the salvation. Did, did the eternal life that you got when you got born again doesn't last forever? It's not eternal? So eternal life is not eternal? Well, if it's not salvation that they could lose by not standing firm, what is it? Well, it could be lots of things. Lots of things. You can lose your peace. You can lose your temporal security. You can lose your finances. You can lose your moral purity. You can lose your sobriety. You can lose your family. You can lose your job. You can lose a lot of things by acting stupid in this world. But one thing that you ain't going to lose is your salvation. You can lose rewards in heaven, but you ain't going to lose your born-again status. I mean, a human being can't even do that. Once a human being is born, he can't say, I don't want to be born of my father. I'm going to be unborn. No. And a Christian can't be unborn again. Now, Paul says, stand firm to the traditions. We've got to point out something here, a basic distinction. Apostolic traditions are good. Pharisees' traditions are bad. And some Catholic traditions are bad, too. Because, you know, the Catholic Church bases their ultimate authority not only on Scripture, but also on traditions. And they come up with all kind of good stuff like worship, <coughs> excuse me, uh, veneration of the Virgin Mary, the assumption of the Virgin Mary, the eternal virginity of the Virgin Mary, the sinlessness of the Virgin Mary, and a bunch of nonsense that this that the Catholic tradition holds, and these are not the type of traditions that Paul is talking about. What is he talking about? Well, a tradition is something that's handed down from one person to another, and so the truths the truths of the gospel are handed over from one to another. That's what a tradition is. Now, who's in this train of tradition? chain of tradition, as John Gill says. Well, God the Father passes his own salvation to God the Son. God the Son passes it on to the apostles, and the apostles pass it on to the churches, and that's how we know how to get saved. Now, what are the particular truths of the gospel that is handed down? 
Well, we could mention some. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, standards of behavior, all the commandments of Christ. How to do church is a tradition that Paul talks about. The leadership of the church should be plural, non-hierarchical, non-salaried, male, interactive meetings. The Lord's Supper weekly is a full meal. I mentioned those things because that's what we don't do. We don't follow Paul's traditions in those areas because we got a better way to do it. We can build these big ecclesiastical warehouses with a fancy sound system and the video system that plays the PowerPoints. We paint the ceiling black and we put strobe lights in there and we get some preacher up there in blue jeans with a hole in the knee so he can be cool even though he's 55 years old and about to get on Medicare. And he gets up there in front of his glass plastic pulpit and he waves his arms around. No, guess what? That ain't following Paul's traditions. If he walked today to look in a church, I think that he would have to fight real hard to control his nausea at what we've done. Because we don't follow what Paul did. And I'm talking about conservative evangelical Christians don't follow Paul. How about liberals? How many times do you hear this? Oh, I obey Jesus, but Paul, he just was a follower of Jesus who just had his opinions. Nonsense. I'm going to show you from the scriptures that's nonsense in just a minute. I remember teaching in China in a meeting, and I forgot what the issue was, but one of the women in the, in the, in the meeting, she was a Catholic woman, she says, well, that was just Paul's opinion. I don't agree with that. I said, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus sent Paul, and Jesus said, if you believe me, you'll believe those that I send. You can't just throw off Paul's opinion as an opinion. Well, that word, traditions, is paradosis, paradosis in the plural. I I always pronounce it wrong, paradosis. I'm looking at the Greek now. It's paradosis. Here's two scriptures that use the Greek verb that comes from the noun paradosis traditions. 1 Corinthians 11:23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And isn't that what a tradition is? It's something that you receive and pass on to somebody else. So that word passed is paradidomi, or it comes from, comes from the infinitive paradidomi, which means to pass on, which is the verb form of paradosis traditions, a paradosis. Paradosis. Tradition. Here's another passage where the Greek verb form of pass on tradition comes is located. First Corinthians 15:3. For I passed on to you that's paradoka, paradoka, paradoka. For I passed on to you is most important that what I also receive. See, Paul receives and he passed it on that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So the word of the apostles is something that's been given to him. Paul had revelations on the road to Damascus and other revelations that he mentions in 1 Corinthians, for example. These revelations are important because that's how we know what God's will is. And if you're going to sit there and say, well, I don't believe what Paul says, well, just throw out the Bible. Go live your worthless life according to the standards of our perverted culture. If that's what you want to do, you cannot throw out the apostles' traditions. Now, there are three scriptures total in the New Testament where or I should say in the writings of Paul, I think it's in the whole New Testament, where traditions is used in a good sense, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. There's this passage where we are now, which is Second Thessalonians 2.15. Paul says, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Also, we see a good use of the word traditions in Second Thessalonians 3.6, the next chapter. Paul says, now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. 
So there's a tradition that's passed down. Now, I mentioned the Pharisees had a bad tradition. Well, the Catholics, and I mentioned the Catholics have a bad tradition. They passed down their apostolic authority from one the original apostle to another apostle to another apostle. That's not what we're talking about here. I don't believe that anymore. I can believe I can fly to the moon. But there, but what Paul passed down, I believe that. I believe what Paul says to us. The third good use of the word tradition is found in 1 Corinthians 11, 2. Now, I praise you, Paul says to the Corinthians, because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Paradoses, traditions. Remember me, Paul says, in everything, and hold fast, is that same phrase there, hold fast to the traditions. Paul's passing it down, and of course it was passed down through his writings as well as the other apostles' writings and delivered to us. And that means that we are bound by the words of the apostles every bit as much as we're bound by the words of Jesus. Now there are ten passages stigmatizing man's uninspired traditions, namely the Pharisees. I'm not going to read those to you because you're used to it. You know, the traditions of men, they're called. The traditions of the elders, sometimes it's called. Now, Paul says in verse 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, Hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. Said is what comes out of your mouth, and what we wrote is what you write down. The said part of it, where Paul said to the Thessalonians certain traditions to follow, probably happened in Acts 17 when Paul established the church. On this very same missionary journey he's on now, he went from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens to Corinth, and he's in Corinth now writing back to the Thessalonians. And by what he wrote, that would be the letter, the previous letter to the, the, uh, to the Thessalonians, what we call today First Thessalonians, and that was just a few months before, or shortly before. We go now to verses 16 and 17 of Second Thessalonians 2, and we'll finish up this audio. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Notice that the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father are mentioned in the same breath. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. From that, John Gill says, quote, It may be concluded that there is an entire equality between them and that Christ is truly and probably God. Properly God. Of course he is. Now, Paul says that God our Father and Jesus have given us eternal encouragement. Eternal, that means encouragement forever. It doesn't, doesn't ever stop. And again, one wonders how God can give us eternal encouragement if we're not saved all the time. If you can lose your salvation, what part of eternal do Armenians not understand, folks? I imagine if any Armenian is listening to this, he's probably ticked off at me right now. I, I, you look, I know you're a good Christian, but, you don't, but I just want to ask you a good question, a, a simple question. Are you trying to tell me that I might not enjoy eternal encouragement when Paul says, may Jesus and God give us that such and good hope by grace? I'm not going to get good hope by grace either, huh? And when he prays that God and Jesus will encourage our hearts and strengthen me and every strengthen the Thessalonians and every good work and word, I can't appropriate that to myself either because I might lose my salvation. Now, Paul says in verse 17, encourage your hearts. It's interesting. Usually we encourage other people. Or other people encourage us. Well, here Paul says, encourage your own heart. The fact that Christians are exhorted to be encouraged shows that we are not on a high all the time. Some people get more easily depressed than others, and there's a lot of depressing stuff in this world, and one's individual life, his work life, his family life. So, Paul tells the Thessalonians to encourage their hearts, and we can make an application to us. We need to encourage our hearts, too. Why? Because we have eternal encouragement. Good hope. Hope is a confident expectation of the future. By grace, God's unmerited favor, he gives us all kinds of grace and gifts. 
that ought to encourage us. And we need to not have the mully grubs so much. And we need to be strengthened in every good work and word. Work is what one does. Word is what one says. So we do and we say. And all that we do or say, we need to be strengthened and encouraged. Why were the Thessalonians discouraged, probably? Probably because they erroneously thought the day of the Lord had come. Remember Paul, I think it's verse 2, said, I don't want you to think that someone, either by spirit or by word or letter, has said that the day of the Lord had come. I don't want you to believe this nonsense. Well, the Thessalonians might have been thinking, well, if the day of the Lord has come, I don't see any good things here. We're still persecuted by the Jews here in Thessal- Thessalonica. If they were thinking the day of the Lord was 870 and the persecution was still going on, well, how did the day of the Lord come to destroy Jerusalem? Or if they were thinking the day of the Lord was Jesus' final coming at the end of time, that is controverted, as I pointed out as we went through that. Well, then nobody was resurrected. What happened to the resurrection of the dead if the day of the Lord's already come? Oh, this is sad. Paul saying, no, encourage your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Second Thessalonians chapter 2. In our next audio, we will cover hopefully all of chapter 3, in which Paul encourages the lazy bones, some of the lazy bones, some of the Thessalonians who are lazy bones, to keep working. Just because the day of the Lord is near, that doesn't mean you're not supposed to work. Good message for left-behind Christians and late great planet Earth Christians who are thinking about, I don't want to polish the rails of a sinking ship. I don't need to work. Jesus is going to come back next week because of the coronavirus. And therefore, I don't need to work. I can just sit here, take my stimulus checks, and get ready to go right into glory. That attitude was is here today. I mean, I've got a friend of mine, hyper-futurist, who is saying that it's within 80 years of 1948 when Israel was a nation that Jesus is going to come back. Well, 80 years from 1948 puts it 2028. That means we've got eight more years on this earth, and he's putting it on the Facebook with no fear of sh- contradiction and with no sense of shame. I guess when he gets down to the year seven, he might stop working, figure he's got enough savings for a year, and he could just quit working. Well, we'll address that in our next audio in chapter three. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoy this one. 